We acknowledge that we are situated on and recording from the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe in what is now called Ontario. We recognize that Maud comes from a land she referred to as Prince Edward Island, but the indigenous people of the area, the Mi'kmaq, call it Ebigwit. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are commentary on the life, times, and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and are solely those of the podcast authors, their guests, or those participating in the podcast and do not represent those of the heirs of Ellen Montgomery. Hey there, Mod Squad. Welcome back to a subject near and dear to us. For sure. We do not have to do any guessing work on this matter. And all we can say is Maud was a tiger. It's the clearest of all of her stories. It's Maud versus Elsie Page, her first publisher. The one who brought Anne to fame throughout the world and the man who stole thousands. That's millions of dollars today from our Maud. But before we get too mad, we have an exciting trip to take to Boston, Massachusetts. Maud's journals of this trip to Boston, where she met her publisher and was shown off to her fans, reads like a fairy tale. And it was. But as in any good fairy tale, lurking around the woods is the big bad wolf. So, when the truth about Harvey Weinstein hit the news in 2019, Steph and I looked at each other, wow. There were parts of that Hollywood story that resonated with us when we compared it to Maud's own experience with her publisher, Louis C. Page. Elsie Page was a shady man in a position of power who used said power to take advantage of talented women. Sounds sort of familiar? Let's catch up. We're back in Cavendish PEI. This was two years after Anne Green Gables was published by Elsie Page and Co. out of Boston. And Anne of Avonlea was Maud's newest project. Maud was battling another hardcore bout of depression. After years of living and caretaking for grandmother, who could blame her? She had cash, which means freedom to us. But she knew if she left the farm, her grandmother would be kicked out of the only home she'd ever known. The pressure Maud felt from her uncle and male cousins was disgusting. Maud could not abandon the woman who never abandoned her. So between this and the depression, even a trip to Charlottetown to sit for a publicity photograph was a major. And we get it, minors become majors when you are feeling low. Or when you've been stuck, quarantined, say, with a family too long. We understand this part a little bit more now. And also, the pressure of fame was mounting. Old friends were looking her up. Everyone wanted a piece of the Maudie pie. She writes of her fame throughout these years with her wry wit that we love. And this one is from April 1909. If anyone wants to find out what has become of her submerged friends, let her write a book. They will then bob up serenely from the deeps of the lost years in all quarters of the world. Yesterday, I had a letter from Lottie Shatford. I had not heard from or of her for seven years. Now she has read Anne and writes to me. Gross Lottie. Add to all of this, she had been alerted by a Canadian book company that Page was not giving her accurate accounts on Canadian sales. She felt pressure to sign this binding clause. A what? Well, it's this. Page wanted Maud to sign a contract promising that she would give him the right to publish her new works for the next five years. Be bound to him. And what was he giving Maud? The same minimal royalties they had agreed on when she was an unknown author. It was a ripoff, and she knew it. Maud was way past the point of feeling grateful just to be published. She was a star. All of this stressed her out. We wish she'd had a literary agent to do the wheeling and dealing. She and Paige had some heated letters back and forth, and we'll let Maud tell it. Here she wrote in November 1910. It began in an odd fashion on October 13th. 
Through September and October, I had been having a rather agitated correspondence with Mr. Page over some complaints, which were eventually cleared up. Then, on October 13th, I received from Mr. Page the final letter on the subject. He said that I should be personally acquainted with my publishers and that this affair, which had involved so much correspondence, could have been settled in 10 minutes conversation, that it was almost necessary to have a personal interview regarding my new book, and finally, that he and Mrs. Page would be delighted if I could go to them for a visit in October. So, imagine this. A letter from Page arrives. No big deal. You're now inundated with fan mail from all over North America, and a slew of them just showed up from Australia. Bananas, you think. This world is getting smaller and smaller. But this letter's business, not a fangirl. It reads, come to Boston. We need to talk. It'll be easy. Also, people want to meet the famous authoress. You'll love it. You look in the cracked mirror in your childhood room. You laugh to yourself and you think, man, if they could see me, they would know I am no authoress. You write a letter saying, no can do. I feel like trash and I can't leave grandmother. You trudge downstairs to the post office. You're also still operating that out of your kitchen. You hear the water dripping through the cracked ceiling into the steadily filling pots. You hear your grandmother's death rattle cough. The cows are bawling in the back field. You take a deep breath. This place sucks. You think, yeah, let's go to Boston. Yes, let's go live life. You tear that RSVP note to shreds. You can hire a girl to take care of grandmother. It's all so clear now. Elsie Page ran the publishing company that accepted her Hatbox manuscript in 1907. It made sense that Maud would send out to publishers based in Boston. Although the Revolutionary War was long over, Boston remained the economic capital of the Maritimes. So, this is the guy who got it all started. Remember that mine, mine, mine quote? That's because Elsie Page accepted the book. Oh, Elsie Page. Lewis Cowes Page was born to American parents in Zurich in 1869. We have his picture in the show notes. He was a Harvard grad and a celebrity of Boston. He was born into wealth and prestige, and he grabbed all of the advantages he could. Right after the success of Anne, he had amassed so much wealth that he and a business partner bought the Boston Braves baseball team in the 1910s. I love that. Because Anne of Green Gables was a total home run, Page could buy half a baseball team. Too bad a percentage wasn't given to Maud. Page had that kind of money. He was given his stepfather's publishing company and seemed to have a superpower or a super scheme. He and his staff, all were women, would discover an unknown author, often a woman, pay her very poorly for the first book, and then, and this is the key point to all this, he would bully a bunch of sequels out of the writers, whether they wanted to or not. When Eleanor H. Porter, author of Pollyanna, died, he searched out the first female African-American public teacher, Harriet Loomis Smith, in Boston, and wrote to her telling her she was wasting her time teaching. He said she should come write for him. She then became the writer responsible for pumping out some of the Pollyanna sequels. We wonder how much he paid her compared to Porter. We wonder a lot of things when we discover these stories. Page and company really started to hum during the education boom. This was the first time literacy was taken seriously, and this created a new concept. People started reading for fun. The public wanted to buy books, and Elsie Page published beautiful ones. They really are beautiful. We dropped a few images in the show notes. If a book was published by Page and Company, it looked like art. He gathered up the novels Beautiful Joe, Pollyanna, and even the early self-help books of Bliss Carmen, who Maud and Ewan both read. It is without argument, though, that the biggest financial win for him was Ellen Montgomery. Anne was the jackpot. 
Maud said Page was made aware of the novel by a Miss Arbuckle from Summerside, who clued Page into Maud's submission. Miss Arbuckle made a wise choice cheerleading for Maud. In its first five months of release, the book sold over 19,000 copies, and it was reprinted 10 times within its first year. Page wanted to be sure that he could hang on to his meal ticket. Cue his invitation to fet LMM in Boston and take care of business. Maud arrived in Boston and partied hard with Paige, his pretty but vacant wife Mildred, and one of our favorite cousins, Cousin Stella. The town and energy was a feast for Maud, and it was the big time. She was heaped with praise during press junkets and interviews. One journalist from Boston's Republic compared her visit to Boston to Charlotte Bronte traveling to London for the first time. As Maud recounted in her journal on November 29, 1910, Miss Conway of the Republic called to see me. I liked her write-up better than any of the others. Some of the paragraphs ran as follows. As the young author entered the page's beautiful library, one thought came to us. It's a repetition of history. Charlotte Bronte coming up to London. Miss Montgomery is slight and short Indeed, of a form almost childishly small, though graceful and symmetrical. She has an oval face with delicate, aquiline features, bluish-gray eyes, and an abundance of dark brown hair. For all her gentleness and marked femininity of aspect, she impressed the writer as of a determined character with positive convictions. We could not imagine her as a woman of affair, or aught but the modest, quiet little gentlewoman of the warm heart and vigorous creative brain that she is. Bostonians are charmed with her unique personality, not less than with her books. She was living the life in Boston. It was a checklist of firsts, her first time in a motor car, Paige kept it on the ready with a personal driver, her first time with electric lights in her own bedroom. She sampled Chateau de Kim for the first time and loved it. She spent tons of cash on clothes, and for the first time in November 1910, she saw her reflection in a full-length mirror. Wild, right? I think the convenience I found convenientest was the mirror door of the closet. It was scrumptious to see yourself from top to toe in full regalia, to know just how your skirt hung and how the different parts of you harmonized. I love this because Maud is so honest. She is not naive. She lived, but she's a country mouse. She had never seen a full-length mirror. And sidebar question for the Maud squad, how did Maud put those amazing outfits together before, back in PEI, all without a full-length mirror? And then there was Paige, boozing her up, comparing her to the Brontes and trotting her out in front of her fans. The vibe in Boston was electric. Parties, plays, book readings. There was a romantic lunar eclipse that everyone was gaga over. Maud happily took part in all of this excitement. She charmed hundreds of fans at luncheons and readings, and she shook hands and said thank you until she felt her face was stuck in a smile. Maud was impressed with Paige's fine old family. Paige was aware of this. And he went out of his way to make sure that they seemed aspirational. He made sure that Maud didn't know that second wife Mildred was in fact his third wife. She hung out with Paige's brother, Paige's sister-in-law, and Maud even hung out with Paige's mother. Talk about building trust. Paige sent bouquet after bouquet of flowers, 
every which way she turned, there was another special delivery. But nothing impressed her as much as Page himself. She wrote about it in November 1910. Lewis Page is a man about 40 and is, to be frank, one of the most fascinating men I have ever met. He is handsome, has a most distinguished appearance and a charming manner, easy, polished, patrician. He has green eyes, long curling lashes, and a delightful voice. He belongs to a fine old family and has generation of birth and breeding behind him, combined with all the advantages of wealth. The result is one of those personalities which must be born and never achieved. Green eyes, curling lashes. Oh, Maud, somebody was sucked in. She was 36 at this point and still locked into this engagement with Ewan. Can you imagine how sophisticated this guy seemed? She wasn't alone. Page was known to be tall and sporty and well-dressed. He knew all the games. He had even hung an original painting of the first print edition of Anne as Maud entered his home for the first time. It was a real seduction. And of course, this was not Page's first rodeo. L.C. Page surrounded himself with women. They could work hard and could be paid almost half of what their male counterparts collected, and they were generally young and attractive. According to the Gift of Wings, Page referred to them as, sorry, these are his words, not ours, his wenches. Dr. Rubio also writes, The firm is remembered as having the atmosphere of a harem. The office building of Page & Co. was designed with two floors for business, but the next three were set up for dinner parties and sleeping quarters. A telling story is of a young Ivy League grad who was flattered when Page asked her up to come visit his firm. Hmm. He sent everyone home. They were alone. There was wine and dinner, and when she turned him down, he chased her around his desk, and she thankfully escaped. Allegedly, this was not an unusual experience for those in his company who were lured up to his private headquarters. This guy sounds like a piece of work. But Maud and Stella were put up respectfully in the home he shared with Mildred, called Page Court. We're not insinuating Maud had anything to do with Page's exploits, but by now, you must know we like to set a tone, right? Maud repeated many times throughout the visit how grateful she was for his generosity. She wasn't stupid, though. She had sent a letter before she arrived asking for the binding clause to be removed from her next book. Good old Paige. He waited till their last night together and brought the contract up to her room, her bedroom. This kind of stuff was not done. Think about your boss now, hmm? Would you want to renew your contract with Ted from accounting in your bedroom? Big no. Maud, as street as she wanted to seem, was truly an aging virgin and in big trouble. What happened in that room? Hey, we are not insinuating any major funny business, but we do imagine that he was super flirty and then to be cool, and we've all been cool like this, she signed the contract again. It was renewed for another five years. What? Why? Why? Because we've all done that. We've all been in situations where we know it's not right and we should speak up. We should say something, make a different choice, and then we don't. And thankfully, I think we're getting out of that habit. So folks, I wish I didn't have to tell you this, but she stayed with that company for 10 more years. And we can also imagine why she stayed. Life got busy. Ewan made very little as a country minister, and she was trying to keep him sane. She was trying to raise her boys, and she was madly working to keep up the appearance that all was well in the McDonald household. We're sure that as she changed behind her screen into her nightgown, she didn't really have the headspace to think, oh wow, you know what, I should take Paige to court. So we get why it went on. But it only went on until finally she could no longer take it. Maud was never dumb, and she could tell that things were coming to a head, so she joined the newly formed Authors League of America, 
for protection. She used one of their lawyers to sue Elsie Page and recover the royalties which Page had withheld. She also negotiated a buyout of $18,000, so she would be totally free from him. She was never fully compensated, as in 1919, Page sold the Anne movie rights for $40,000. The silent picture of Anagram Gables was a hit. Sidebar. This hit was impossible for us to find. We searched for it, but no copies remain. Why? The director, William Desmond Taylor, was murdered. It rocked Hollywood in 1922. Even now, no one knows for sure who did it, but the teenage actress Mary Miles Minter, who played Anne, and her mother still remain suspects. Mary Miles Minter, 30 years younger than Taylor, was pushed into obscurity when love letters to him were found near the crime scene and published. Her career and the film were destroyed. Maude herself found out about this tragedy when she stumbled on the story in a 1929 compilation, 12 Unsolved Murders. Some stills from the film remain, and we've included a few in the show notes. And for bonus content, we have a picture of me in the show notes after I found the grave marker of William Desmond Taylor in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. What I won't do for the Mod Squad. It was really creepy in there. Aside from the murder, Maude did not like this film. She did not approve of the casting, and worst of all, they flew the American flag. But we truly feel the worst of all is that Maude was duped into selling the full book rights for her first seven books to Paige. He directly turned around and sewed up a film deal with real art pictures in Hollywood for Anne and its three sequels. Maude had no consulting input or even knowledge about the film until it was widely released. Imagine the day she saw the ad up in her local theater in Toronto. A movie? Terrible. She complained that there was a skunk in the film, impossible on the island. No such animals existed, but to us, the real skunk was Elsie Page. Maud found a new publisher, Stokes, in the U.S. You would think everyone would just move on and live happily ever after, but Sharky Elsie Page wouldn't let her go. His company published further chronicles of Avonlea, cobbled together from discarded stories that Maud had submitted. Basically, he went dumpster diving for her work, and he cut and pasted together a new book. He even offered another East Coast author, Bliss Carmen, that self-help guy, 50 bucks to polish the work. Has anyone ever read further chronicles and thought it sounded a bit off or choppy? I did. When he sent it to Maude for revisions, as she was still under obligation to work for him, she deleted any mention of Anne. She did not want him to benefit from a now world-famous ginger. He promptly put the Anne's back in and published it. She was so embarrassed. She looked like she was recycling storylines and running out of ideas. At this time, she had also signed a contract with Stokes, her new publisher, that they would be the publishers of anything Anne. So, Elsie's weasel ways made her look like a liar with her new publisher. She was not a weasel, and she was not out of ideas. Maude would not stand for this. She took him back to court. Paige then sued Maude for libel in response to her lawsuit. I mean, it was getting dirty and long. Maude said Paige would rather give tens of thousands to a lawyer versus a thousand to her. In Christmas 1918, Maude received a fancy travel book with the inscription, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, LCP. To think that such a busy, self-important man took the time to put salt in the wound before their upcoming court date shows how personal it had gotten. Maud was a woman of principle. She had a keen sense of her own values, of right and wrong, and she would fight to many bitter ends to achieve what was right. Long ago, I gave up trying to understand Lewis Page's mentality. Here I have been fighting tooth and nail for nine years to compel him to take that book off his list. And now, when I have succeeded, 
he seems to imagine I will let him keep it on. I never went into that case with the idea of getting money. I went into it solely to get that book with its ridiculous reduplications off the market. And it stays off. After many trips to Massachusetts, after filing the case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and being away for months at a time from home, even missing Chester's eighth birthday, Maud was exhausted and guilt-ridden. But she won. In October 1928, she wrote, It is over, 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 and I am free. Through all of this, she kept writing a lot. She completed six novels while these five lawsuits and countersuits raged on. After more than a decade of fighting, she was granted around $18,000, but the lawyer's fees were 15000 Obviously for Maud, this was not about money, nor did it seem to be for Elsie Page. He wouldn't let things go. He sent creepy telegrams to Maud blaming her for his brother's heart attack and his sister-in-law's deaths. He was obviously losing it. He eventually fell from public favor, and he knew his days were limited when major department stores stopped carrying his books. He couldn't get new authors, but he still had income from his prior earnings. It was this money that he left to his most beloved female employees when he died in 1956. Some of them found out in a brutal way that they weren't his only girlfriend when the list of beneficiaries was published in a paper. Nice guy. On his gravestone in Latin, he had inscribed... Qui libros bonos addendos caravit, meaning he took great care to publish good books. I guess the guy finally told the truth. In 1929, in a letter to her beloved honeymoon pen pal George Macmillan, she looked back on the saga. Page's record is full of these things when dealing with his women writers. He knew most women would submit to anything rather than go to law. But I came of a different breed of cats. Meow, Maud, you did it. She fought because she could. She had the means and the tenacity. Maud had known she was not wrong. And this is why she kept fighting for those who couldn't or wouldn't. Her determination would protect her family for generations. And as we will hear in our next episode, Maud's legacy wasn't just her family. Her work would go on to change the lives of Margaret Atwood, Alice Monroe, Mindy Kaling, and Jenny and me? Huh. Tune in next week for our last and our favorite episode. I also see before it a garden. Thank you for this Mod Squad. Down with Paige, up with Mod. See you next week. Thanks so much. Bye. Ella Montgomery's journal entries are read by Nola Augustson. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a rating or a review. It goes a long way in helping us find a new audience for Maud.